I remind you next week, five o'clock, not four o'clock. Five o'clock. Um, should be a little cooler then and uh, give us a chance to do more with our kids outside, which will be nice. And also able to open these doors without um, either burning up or freezing, depending on where you're sitting. So, how are Christians different from normal people? That was supposed to be a little funny. Um, how are we different from normal people? We, we don't have uh, enclaves right, that we all live in together, I mean, except maybe if um, a group like the Amish does, but most Christians don't. Uh, we don't have special clothes that we wear uh, to distinguish us like uh, a lot of the Orthodox Jews do. Uh, I was told that the adoption of wearing uh, all black clothes was to do something deliberate to, to try not to um, over-accommodate with the nations around you, to try to stay pure for God. Wearing only black clothes is supposed to help with that is the idea behind it, but we don't do that. We don't have a uniform. We don't have a special diet. We don't have uh, a unique language except for some of our strange jargon. We don't have our own music, except for some of our strange music. Right? But generally, we don't have external things that distinguish us as Christians from normal people. So then how are we different? And it's a question that matters quite a bit to us, especially with the passage we're going to look at today, which is in Romans 12. If you want to turn there and follow along, or just you can follow along in your bulletin, because it basically says for Christians that being normal, being uh, in conformity with the world around you is not an option. It's not an option. Maybe the way you used to live, but it's not an option anymore. And the change that is uh, supposed to happen in you and that Jesus is committed to making happen in you as a Christian is uh, it's so transformative that it's talked about like having a whole new mind given to you or built in you, a whole new mind. So we're going to think about what does that mean? Uh, how are we different as Christians? So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that um, you would open our minds to you, but also our hearts to you. Um, so much of our difficulty comes from assumptions that we never examine. And we're here because we want to know you and ask that you would speak to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A very short passage, just one verse, Romans 12, 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So don't be conformed to this world. Uh, conformed to this world. When I was growing up, we would we would have said, "Don't be worldly," right? And that's a word. I don't. People don't use the word worldly very much anymore. Um, if they do, sometimes it means uh, someone who's a sophisticate, kind of a James Bond character, who's uh, amoral but has really highly developed sense of taste, uh, really gets the most out of life. That's a worldly person, we might say. Um, Growing up and in religious circles, when you hear people talk about someone being worldly, usually what is meant or implied is this is somebody who's um, a little too comfortable here, a little too engaged with the created world and its pleasures, 
and a little under suspicious about how dangerous the world is. So a worldly person is somebody who's over too close to the edge of enjoying themselves too much, right? Uh, without sinning somehow. Um, do you know Babette's Feast? Get a lot of nods. People who know Babette's Feast tend to love Babette's Feast. It's a short story and a movie as well. Uh, it's written by a woman named Karen Blixen, who wrote under a pen name Isaac Denison for some reason. And uh, she's actually, Karen Blixen is uh, the person on whom the movie Out of Africa is based. She was a conservationist who worked with giraffes and, uh, in Africa. Meryl Streep played her in the movie, which is pretty sweet. And, but anyway, she went back home to Denmark, where she was from after that, and uh, began to write. And she wrote this story, Babette's Feast. And if you are unfamiliar with it, it's a story of this uh, dreary little Norwegian seaside village and a sect of Lutherans who lived there. Uh, they were a very separatist sect. They lived in a gloomy place. Um, the movie's very gloomy. Always dark and gritty and gray. Um, not a lot of sunlight there ever, and the, the sect sort of matched the weather. They were gloomy and strict and legalistic and gray as well. They'd been founded by this man who was the bishop there, and he had pretty much set the tone that there wasn't going to be much in the way of joy or frivolity or happiness there. Not a lot of smiling in this little Lutheran sect, in this little village. The bishop had two daughters that he named Martine and Philippa. Uh, Martine for uh, Martin Luther and uh, Martina, I mean, uh, Philippa for Philip Melanchthon, uh, Luther's cohort in the Reformation. They ate only boiled fish and boiled bread. Mmm. <laughs> that just sounds wonderful. Uh, not wanting to indulge in any kind of uh, pleasure, certainly not with food anyway. Well, the founder died, and then his two daughters, uh, beautiful daughters, they, they kept on with the work there, but it wasn't going great. It was a kind of a failing community, as you might imagine. You know, there were uh, women who were at odds at each other. There were brothers who hadn't spoken to each other in years. Rumors of infidelity in the group. And just not a happy picture, not a happy clan. Right. And uh, one day, during a terrible snowstorm, they hear a thump at their door where they're meeting. And they open the door, and there's this woman there who is uh, emaciated and frozen half to death. And uh, she kind of collapses into the room. When she's able to speak, she can only speak French, so they can't communicate, but she has a note pinned to her, like a three-year-old. You know? And the note says that uh, this is Babette, and she was a victim of violence in the French Civil War. Her husband was killed along with her only child, and then she was hounded by authorities and had to flee. They put her on a steamer and sent her to this remote village in Norway, uh, hoping they could give her refuge and shelter. And uh, Babette also cooks. It said on the note. Well, they welcomed her in, and she became their housekeeper and cook, just cooking what they ate, boiled fish, boiled bread, for 11 years. And uh, then they got word in the mail that someone had entered her name in a lottery in France, and she had won 10,000 francs, which is enough to restore her former life and let her go back home. 
And so it's dramatic news. But she asked them if she could, as a gift to them before she left, uh, cook them a proper French meal. And they said, French meal? They eat frogs <laughs> and horses. No. But she prevailed on them because she said, it's the anniversary of our founder's 100th birthday if he had lived. And uh, so they allowed her to cook this feast. So pretty soon at the docks in this little town, uh, ships started unloading crates and crates of uh, all kinds of exotic food, you know, uh, sea tortoises and uh, pheasants and quail and cheeses and chocolates and champagne and crate after crate of wine and hauling them all up uh, into the little house where they met in the town. And she makes from this a sumptuous feast. A sumptuous feast, course after course, going on for hours of great food. And they're nervous about it when they sit down to eat because they're like, I don't know if we should like this. I don't, I don't know if it's okay to like this or want this. It feels, it feels sketchy, right? It feels sinful. Uh, maybe we shouldn't. But as, as the dinner goes on, and it's just a marvelous dinner, uh, eventually somebody laughs. And then somebody else laughs. And as they go through the later courses, the mood of the room lightens and they start talking to each other and caring about each other. And at the end of this meal, they all go out into the square in the town around the fountain that's there. And they hold hands around the fountain and they start dancing and singing with lusty voices uh, the Lutheran hymns that they all know. Blixen's comment on this was, it's as though Babette's feast had cracked open the gate and grace had stolen its way in. Her feast had cracked open the gate and grace had stolen its way in. When they were cleaning up, the sisters asked her, they said, we're really sad for you to leave. Um, and she said, oh, I'm, I'm not leaving. I wouldn't have the means to go. And they said, what do you mean? You won 10,000 francs. And she said, yeah, but I, I spent it all on the meal. So here's my question. Did Babette ruin them? Did she make them worldly? What is the challenge of conformity that Paul talks about here? Don't be conformed to this world. What's the challenge of over-conformity? The challenge of you know, the, the chameleon effect in a, in a Christian's life where you uh, basically just blend in, go along to get along in whatever culture that you're in. I mean, what's the problem there? It's the problem that the Israelites had in Canaan when they first went into the Promised Land and Moses had this you know, very serious sermon, the book of Deuteronomy, before they went into the Promised Land. And he said, look, you're going to go in the Promised Land and you're going to start doing the way they do in Canaan. You're going to start worshiping the way they worship. Uh, you're going to take on their customs and habits and don't you do it. Right? It'll, it'll ruin you spiritually if you do. And of course, they did. Right? They were ruined by the chameleon effect in Canaan, just like we often are. But when he says world here, don't be conformed to this world, he's not using the word cosmos that is often used in the New Testament to mean the created order. When he says the world, he means the world in the sense of the world system of values. Like uh, way, the way that people where you live try to make their lives work without God. Like the, whatever's in the air 
where you live that makes sin look normal and righteousness look odd. That's the world. That's uh, what worldliness is, is capitulation to that. It's a, it involves ethics. It involves uh, where you find help when you are in trouble. It involves what you think is really important in life and non-negotiable in life. It's this world. It's the zeitgeist, to use another word for it. Not the cosmos, not the physical creation, which is actually good. It's the thing if you're a student that makes you want so badly to fit in, right? And not, not be excluded or thought odd or strange. You know, once you're out of school, you don't worry about that at all anymore. Um, but you do, you do sort of breathe in an idea of what is the good life? What does it mean to be successful? Uh, what does it mean to be respectable? And you adopt uncritically, most of the time, notions about that from the culture around you from this world, to use Paul's term there. And it's the danger that's posed by that uh, spirit of the age, that this worldliness, the, the aeon is the Greek word there. It's that is the danger, not the physical world and the physical creation. Now, the physical creation can be a threat to us. We can take good things that God made good and we can misuse them and become addicted to them and abuse them. Um, and that's a problem, but it's not really the main part of what he's talking about here. But usually what happens is Christians confuse these things. And they say to be worldly is to be overly thankful or connected to the physical creation. And to avoid worldliness means to be dowdy. Right? And to avoid any kind of developed sense of taste or style. To not have a really pretty car, but just an okay car is how you avoid worldliness. Or to not have a huge house, but just an okay house is how you avoid worldliness. Um, or to just draw back into your little subculture is how you avoid worldliness by staying away from dirty non-Christians, right? You know, that kind of a notion. We'll just read our own books and we'll just watch our own movies and uh, we'll just listen to our own music, right? And you're familiar with this subculture idea of Christianity. One of my favorite send-ups of it was Hank Hill talking to his son Bobby when Bobby had joined a Christian rock band. And he famously said, Bobby... You're not making Christianity better. You're making rock and roll worse. <laughs> so, you know, I thought that was pretty good. But Christians who tend to love this verse, by the way, you know, this is a pretty famous verse. Don't want to conform to the world because we want to love Jesus and be faithful to him. But usually what we do is we kind of swing back and forth on the pendulum between being kind of a chameleon who's over accommodated to the world around us and then back over here to the tribal side where we just hole up and um, try not to enjoy life too much to make sure we're being holy. Um, after the bad experience in Canaan that the Jews had, they got sent into exile. When they came back from exile, they were on the fool me twice, shame on me plan, which was we are not over accommodating again. And they locked that thing down with strict, exhaustive rules about how to live in this world. And you see some of that, the uh, fruit of that and the after effects of it. When Jesus came a couple hundred years later, the sects of the Pharisees and how they had codified every part of life to try to make sure they never made any mistakes and were never worldly, right? And yet, at the same time, missed everything that Jesus was trying to say to them. This happened, some of y'all read the book Unorthodox, or some of you have seen the miniseries on Netflix, Unorthodox. Um, 
this is a, a very strict Jewish sect that believed that the reason the Jews had suffered so badly in the middle of the last century in Europe was because they had become over-accommodated to the world around them. Like they'd become chameleons in the cultures of the world and that God had punished them for that. And their reaction to that is they are going to lock it down and not have anything to do with the world around them or anything good in the creation. And you know the extent of the laws that they made in that book or in that movie if you got to see it. But basically looking for external protections from worldliness. I want to make, build a fence that makes sure I'm never worldly and so I can be safe and good spiritually. Which sounds like it's probably nobly intentioned, but it doesn't work. Right? It doesn't protect us from the spirit of this age. So what, what does? What does transformation look like? What does being renewed in your mind look like then for us? Well, it has a lot to do with the last... 11 chapters of Romans and what Jesus has done for us when he cracked open the gate uh, so grace could steal in to our lives. That what Jesus came to do in response to the rebellious, broken world that he'd created. The world was created, the end of the creation, what did God say about it? It's very good. Very good. Then we ruined it by rebelling against him, wanting to be independent. And now it's twisted and warped. And every good thing God made is bent and is a mess. And so God's response to our rebellion was not to uh, destroy us and start over. Which he almost did with Noah, right? But his intention wasn't to destroy his creation and start over. His intention was to fix his creation. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to go to rescue it. And eventually, I'm going to fix these people, and I'm going to fix my relationship with them, and I'm going to fix everything they've broken in their rebellion so that the world works right, and they're in relationship with me, and things are the way they're supposed to be again, finally. It's a restoration project of what God has made, not a start over. So when Jesus came, He didn't come to squash us, and He didn't come to evacuate us out of the world. He came to restore us and to restore His world. He came to fix what was broken. And the renovation project in our lives is so complete. It's such a down-to-the-studs renovation that when you become a Christian, the metaphor the Bible uses for that is being born again. Like a whole new life. You are born again. And when Paul talks about what the process of transformation is during your life as a Christian, he says it's like getting a whole new mind, a renewal of your mind, which changes everything about your mind and reshapes it, which is a pretty dramatic thing. Because I don't like to change my mind. (laughs) Renewing the mind sounds like just improving it, but that's not really what he's saying. He's talking about changing your mind All of your habits and assumptions and intuitions have to be uh, redeemed and rescued and changed. And that's some violent process in your life. But what it means is this, is that when you enter in this kind of relationship with Jesus, uh, you can kiss being normal goodbye. Normal is not going to come into play anymore for you. Poor Roman Christians, you know, they were 
Nobody even knew what a Christian was when they were Christians. They already felt crazy enough. And now Paul says this. Yeah, you know how you kind of feel like a, a stranger here now because you're a Christian? Well, that's only going to get worse, and it's going to be permanent this whole life. You're going to be an exile and a refugee for the duration. That's going to be the Christian life. And not going to be normal in any recognizable way ever again. The reshaping of your values. We'll come back to that in just a second. But let me say what transformation of the mind is not. It is not a codified list of behaviors that you have to learn, like a policy manual. I mean, there are some pretty specific moral commands in the Bible, don't get me wrong. But the temptation is to codify every decision that you're ever faced with in life. Any circumstance that comes up, here is the right Christian answer for that. Um, which is kind of what the Pharisees had done with God's law. They don't want there to be any gray areas. They don't want to be any place where they're worried that they might mess up. So they codify everything. And their list, just like the policy manual at your work, only gets longer over time, right? Every new contingency creates a new chapter in the policy manual. Codify the list of behaviors. When I was growing up, this was uh, the Bill Gothard Institutes for Basic Youth Conflict. They used to pack out the basketball arena in Atlanta every year for a week because people were like, I'm desperate to know the rules. I want the rules that will fix my kids and fix me. I'm here, download them, plug the matrix thing in and let's go. Give me the codified rules. But that doesn't work to avoid worldliness. Uh, the other thing that this isn't, a renewed mind, is not a list of approved opinions about every subject that comes up. Uh, this is our view of X, Y, Z, and any other thing you can think of, there's a Christian view of everything. And once you download that information, the Wikipedia page of uh, Christian opinion about the world, then you will have a renewed mind. That's not what he's saying either. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us anything nearly that exhaustive and for a reason. So the Pharisees, trying to avoid worldliness, not wanting to be conformed to this world, um, had a huge codified list of rules and an opinion on everything. And they had all that where all you have to do is learn this and conform and you're fine and you won't be worldly. And when Jesus, God himself, shows up on earth and starts talking to them about the, the good news, he blew every circuit they had. They had no categories for what God himself had to say to them. Despite all their hard work and trying, Jesus said, look, you... You've made rules down to how you tithe on the herbs in your kitchen. And yet somehow you've missed the weighty matters of the law. Mercy and faithfulness and justice. But you've got the tithe on the herbs down. But you're missing the whole big picture. You thought you weren't being worldly, but you are. You are. You're being careful and that way didn't work for you. What Paul says here is that you renew your mind by testing and learning to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. Learning to discern what is God's will, what pleases the Lord. This isn't saying you learn how to discern God's will so that you can make great decisions all the time with um, magic insight from heaven. This isn't talking about decision making really at all, like who you're supposed to marry or what job you're supposed to take or what you're supposed to major in. And have you noticed old people that, you know, after you make those decisions, there aren't that many more decisions to make in life? <laughs> you know, you just 
Most days are the same. But he's not talking about how to get God to tell you what he wants you to do uh, since God won't tell you that. That's not the, he's not saying how to get God to tell you his will. He's saying how you can grow to see the world more through Jesus' eyes and how you can grow to feel the world through Jesus' heart. Growing in wisdom and maturity and relationship with God that comes not from downloading information, but from steeping in information over a long period of time. The life of Jesus, uh, the Scriptures, God's law, ethically, living long days of life with God and life with God's people that trains you to see the world through Jesus' eyes is what a renewal of the mind means. Learning as you do that to turn away from seeking to find your ultimate home and your, your ultimate pleasure here. Right? Learning to see through the lies of this age where we live that say you can find a real life through romance or through your job or through money. Uh, learning not to believe in those gods. Learning to recognize the insinuations of the advertisements as you hear them. Uh, refusing to be discipled by your Twitter feed or by your news channel. So that you say, I'm going to learn by the renewing of my mind, which is steeping in things that are true, what's good and acceptable and beautiful, not, not rage scrolling or having 24-hour news on all the time. You're not going to be discipled into the renewed mind uh, by social media. And learning to recognize in yourself and in your society when people are trusting in princes, like our Old Testament reading that was so scary today about uh, trusting in Egypt Trusting in princes, trusting in technology, thinking that all of our help for everything that's wrong is going to come to us either through technological advancement or through political action. And learning to have a different hope and not settling for hopes like that. But then also learning to embrace things. Embrace the humility of being willing to change your mind. Because obviously our minds are going to have to be changed if we're going to be fit for heaven. If we're going to be prepared for the new creation, a lot of change has to happen. Um, Learning to believe that the good news of Jesus Christ really is powerful to change people. Um, learning not to accept the naturalistic view of the world that says matter is all that there is. But to know that God is at work in the world and that his gospel has the power to change people like me and you and our friends. And learning things like Babette's feast shows us where you know the Bible doesn't just give us Rules about generosity, it gives us examples for our imagination about generosity. Babette, the rule, the thing that makes Babette's gift so beautiful is not that she followed the rule perfectly. It's that she had the heart of grace that was expressed in her gift perfectly. And that's the maturity that we long for. That's the renewed mind that we long for as we seek to grow as Christians. Paul earlier in the book of Romans has basically said the Christian life uh, for a Christian now is like it's as if you died and went to heaven and came back. Which he says in uh, the book of Corinthians happened to him. I'm, I don't know if anybody else that says that. You know, Jesus came from heaven. But like Paul had this wild experience. But he said the Christian experience is, is like that. It's as if you had died and gone to heaven and come back. And now you look at the world through eyes that are reshaped because of what you've seen because of your hope. 
Kind of like when Diggory and uh, Polly came back from the wood between the worlds in the first Narnia book, right? They're back in the regular world that they know, but it's never going to look the same to them again, right? Because of their experience in the other world. Paul says, and this is basic Christian ethics, he says, live into the future, live into who you're going to be. Jesus is going to fix you. There's going to be like a sinless version of you, believe it or not, a sinless version of your spouse, believe it or not, and uh, who's going to be unbelievably beautiful in a character, probably physically. Um, Jesus is fixing his broken creation. And he said, that fix has already started with you if you're a Christian. Your war with God's already ended. And now the collateral damage is beginning to be repaired. And so your idea as a Christian is not keep all the rules as best you can. It's become who you're going to be. It's a much, it's a much more elastic notion. Uh, it involves a lot more than just figuring out the rules. It involves a life of love to God and wisdom God. And it involves his law, but it's a richer theme than that. Live into the future. That means that you live in this world now crying over the ruin and loss more than you ever would have cried before because you feel the brokenness here differently and you lament it. It means that you don't settle for anybody's version of the good life that has all of its hope in this life. The you only go around once philosophy can't resonate with you any longer. And it means that you enjoy the physical creation that God has made as an appetizer of the new creation. Right? You don't find your ultimate joy in sex and food and music and things like that here, uh, but you find joy in them uh, because you see them not as the ultimate thing that gives you a life and makes you happy. You see them as hints and appetizers of the real world and the real feast that's going to be your delight. You've got something better to want. And the renewal of your mind trains your heart to long for that. It's like we read at the beginning of the service today. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food full of marrow. A feast of aged wine, well refined. And we'll say on that day, behold, this is our God. We waited for him that he might save us. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now let's pray.